Before we get started, I want to thank Sonos for supporting this podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Domino's new podcast, Design Time, where we explore spaces and places with meaning. I'm your host, Jessica Ron Perez, Domino's editor in chief. Each week, join me along with creative visionaries who will share their journey to designing spaces that move you. We'll explore the emotional side of design, from the ritual of gathering to a mood-boosting paint trick to the renovation tips that will inspire your next project. Home is the best place to start exploring personal style. How do you shape your world from the inside out? Let's discover now on Design Time. Matt Horanick and Yolanda Edwards are what many would call a creative power couple. Throughout their careers, Matt and Yolanda have worked together and separately for some of the most dynamic and inspiring publications, documenting their travels, food, and homes for digital and print, and solidifying a loyal following that trusts their every move. Every recommendation they put out there, from where to go, where to eat, what to drink, where to stay, what to shop for, and most importantly, how to document it, is supported by vibrant images and heartful storytelling. Memory keeping and collecting is central to Matt and Yolanda's perspective. They are gifted editors, prolific content creators, and trusted curators who are generous with their knowledge and always up to share a recommendation or a story to give their suggestion more weight. After leaving Condé Nast Traveler, they each launched independent print magazines, W.M. Brown and YOLO Journal, while engaging their loyal audience on Instagram and consulting for brands. As we approach the holidays, I'm so happy to catch up with Matt and Yolanda and talk about how they're celebrating even on a smaller scale this year. I'm so excited to share my conversation with Matt and Yolanda with all of you. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Matt and Yolanda, how are you? Great. How Good. are you? Now, you, you know, background as obviously talented editors, but you have not really dabbled in retail, although I think that ultimately a Matt Horanic Yolanda Edwards retail environment would be amazing. I think that we both I know I'm speaking definitely for Yolanda here as well, that we've always had this kind of fantasy of what would be our ideal curation of a retail space and what's in there. We've definitely been thinking about this for a long time. What's fun is that I think we're all so used to, especially when we were all on the road a lot, finding those like small little stores, um, that kind of perfect, perfect edit that really it's like one singular point of view. And so I thought it was really great this idea that we could have this opportunity to make an edit with all the small finds. It's just great exposure for these small brands. You also are amazing collectors. So when I think about how you travel, 
one of the things that you do so well is you document all of the things that you're collecting and memory making being such an important part of that. You both give your audience via Instagram a window onto your experiences and the things that that you're seeing and you're collecting. How are you doing that now that you're not traveling as much? I mean, we are traveling domestically and we love a, a back county road trip. And there's there's still a lot of things to find without having to be in a flea market in Milan or Paris or Zurich or whatever. We've always been a big fan of discovering our own backyard. And now there's been even more opportunity to do that. And of course, the edit is different, but I think the point of view is the same. Where we went on this road trip in August, we went out to Kenandagawa Lake, which is part of the Finger Lakes, but it's really quite close to Rochester. Mm-hmm. And those backcountry roads like that basically kind of parallel the, the path of the Erie Canal, we found some of the most amazing treasures. We literally came back with a crazy canoe from the 20s, right? Yeah, like an old, like a vintage old town hand-painted piece of art. Oh, amazing. Yolanda was like, did you see the canoe? And we look up and there was this magical, like hand-painted old town canoe from the 30s. And we persuaded the guy to get it down. And, and then we bought it. And then I ran to like the auto supply store to buy tie downs and a few sponges to put on top of the car and get it home. Amazing. It was kind of like a rescue project. We just needed to have it and we'll probably find the right person who should have it on display. Like I think it belongs in one of these great new projects that all these creatives are doing hotels in upstate. And I think it belongs in something like that, not just in our barn, Mm -hmm. but we'll give it a home for a while until we find the right person. So tell me about the barn. What is going on in that barn upstate? (laughs) Well, I think what's interesting about the story of the barn is we bought that property 20 years ago. It was really, there was only a barn on it. There was a, you know, an old fifties mobile home that got carted away. And then we just had this piece of land and this barn. And I was so excited about the barn because it was like 6,000 square foot of storage space. Like my dream, right? You go from this one bedroom apartment in New York in the West Village and you're like, holy cow. People kept saying to us, aren't you going to convert that barn into a house? And we were like, absolutely not. We're going to stuff things in that barn. It's storage. So what happens when you have a 6,000 square foot barn is you start putting stuff in it, cars, junk, Furniture. Furniture. So this summer, we decided, you know, let's use some of our time to to be smart about getting rid of some of the storage that we have in Brooklyn and moving things up to the barn. And we decided to have a big barn sale. And it was awesome. And we made a lot of people happy because we didn't price it in like Brooklyn sort of ways, although most of the people who came drove up from the city. You know, one man's junk is another man's treasure. I will say there was no junk there. Like there was all really good stuff. Did you have a moment, Matt, where you're like, uh, that's not for sale. That's not for sale. Oh, yeah. We definitely did that. Our daughter, Clara, did that too. She was like, you know, I'm going to need some of this stuff when I go up to college. I'm going to make my <laughs> yeah. own bin edit. I love that. 
who are some of your design heroes? You both have such a grasp on design and designers and history, but who constantly inspires you from a design perspective? I've always been interested in modernism, like 20th century modernism. And I guess because my dad was and whatever. And I had IBM in my hometown. So, you know, you'd go to office supply stores and you would go to junk shops and you'd go to the Salvation Army and it would be from Jens Rism to, you know, Herman Miller, Florence Knoll, Eames, like this stuff was like in junk shops. And I knew what it was and I was just buying whatever I can get my hands on. So I always kind of leaned into that as much as I loved, you know, architects like Mies van der Rohe and Craig Elwood and Neutra and all these modernists, you know, I love a good old American cabin. And I think Mm -hmm. that was such a nice balance um, growing up in upstate New York, because there was a lot of that kind of vernacular country hunting cabin Adirondacky feeling design. And I think I leaned into both of that probably because it kind of echoed the Scandinavian modernism in a way that I was kind of leaning into. Yolanda's definitely more kind of flowery and gilded and sometimes I call like old lady style. You know, as an adult, I've been so attracted to the kind of world of interiors and that, like, as Matt will say, more the old lady. I remember the first time I was exposed to um, world of interiors, the back page, it was Alistair McAlpin had this whole thing on collecting. And we went to this hotel in Puglia that he ran called the Il Convento, that's what it's called. And it was like his collections from all over the world and all living in this place. And I was like, oh, this mm-hmm. is, I don't know. It's like once you kind of find a collector and it's organized collecting, so it's not hoarding, you sort of feel like you've just been given a little permission to follow that instinct. And I think that's the best thing about being editors is we've been exposed to so many different ways of of seeing how people live and well, we we have a problem with the actual editing part. I always see myself as this kind of archivist and that idea of like, how can you let this thing be left behind? And I think a lot of our intuition comes from, you know, I was collecting vintage clothes since junior high school. And, you know, you see some amazing vintage, I don't know, Woolrich shirt. And you're just like, wait, I can't leave this behind. And then suddenly you realize in that barn, you have a Rubbermaid bin filled with vintage Woolrich shirts. Can you speak to that intuition? Because I don't think most people trust their own intuition, filter, especially when shopping for vintage. I think it's something that makes people like very nervous. Like, I think I like that. Is it good? Is it bad? You seem to kind of be fearless in the, this is good. Here's why. How would you advise people to trust that gut? You need to pick a lane of what's your style, what's your point of view, what you're into. Like when I walk into a shop, I have this idea of what I'm looking for in terms of design cues or how I'm looking to decorate something or how I'm looking to find a piece of art. I kind of buzz through there with this filter and Yolanda very methodically kind of picks up the rear. And then she'll often say like, did you see that amazing dance cutting board. But I think it's about editing and putting on that editing cap of what what is the lane that you're interested. I just think that is a part of the process. I definitely understand that sort of insecurity about making a commitment to something that's like a bigger piece. Like Matt is very good at understanding space. I'm not the person who's going to say, 
we need to have this, it's going to work perfectly in the middle of this room. It's good to like be okay with just because you're not good at picking out the armoire doesn't mean that you might not be good at figuring out filling like the, the armoire. <laughs> right. Filling it or like, oh, well, I'm really good at doing little vignettes that sit on the coffee table or whatever those things may be. And I think asking friends who are good at it or just finding your inspiration from magazines like yours, just not being hard on yourself, being okay with those mm-hmm. baby steps. I don't think it takes a lot of money to have good design and beautiful things in your life. And I think you just need to find out what you like and then put on that editor's hat and get out there and dig around and find it. That's the most fun. The hunt is the hunt is the most fun. The hunt is the most fun. And I think what's really been interesting this year is so many sellers have found other avenues to reach people. So many people are talking about a seller they found on Instagram or a seller they found on Facebook Marketplace. Like those places are taking off and giving a platform to these tiny sellers who have a really interesting point of view. And often like it's not expensive. The Mm -hmm. vintage market in particular, I think is becoming this connected thing. It is very interesting. I think for, especially for a younger collector to be able to dive in and learn about pieces find new sellers. It is very cool. It's very inspiring. Well, I also think, you know, you can do your research on a high-end site that's very highly edited, like First Dibs. And then you can go dig around Facebook Marketplace. I think it's about educating yourself of what's out there. I think about my friend Chris Mitchell, who is an epic eBay shopper. I mean, he finds the most spectacular stuff. And yes, some things are expensive, but some things are just absolute bargains. And he's so patient and so good at navigating that, I think I do much better in the wild. Seriously, isn't it crazy how quickly those perfect fall nights have turned into chilly winter evenings? It's not too soon. I'm ramping up for the holiday season now with maximum coziness sitting fireside listening to Sif John Stevens on my Sonos Move while I dream up what I'm gifting to family and friends. Customized for listening just how I want, Sonos Move is a luxe portable smart speaker that fits anywhere in my home. Move connects to the Sonos app for a totally personalized experience. The Sonos app brings together all of my streaming, voice, and control services so I can easily browse music, radio, podcasts, and audiobooks. Setup is dead simple, and it's just as easy to use. Even my kids can queue up the Beach Boys Christmas and George Michael on repeat while they write their Christmas lists for the 10th time. Go to Sonos.com to learn more and wrap up your holiday shopping. So I want to hear about the house and what that renovation process was like. And then I do want you to tell everyone just a little bit about your house upstate, because I think that is very inspiring to people, especially as people are wanting to buy land, thinking about prefab, I think, in a different way. So let's start with the house in France, and then we'll go back upstate. Well, I think uh, one of the things that's interesting about the house in France and connecting it to people here who are sort of doing the like, okay, we want to get out of cities and what would have been a secondary home is now 
the search for a primary home, but kind of we now can be in the middle of nowhere. And I think that the town that we bought this house in, it was actually two adjacent houses that are these merchant houses from the uh, 1800s. And if you were to Google Earth this, all you would see is like vineyards everywhere with a tiny, tiny little pocket of a town that has a church and maybe like 20 houses. And so these were the houses that the merchants who dealt with selling the grapes um, would have lived in. And so we bought them with a plan to build a hallway between them. So we would essentially have a four bedroom house with all the bedrooms up on the top and we'd combine the backyard so that you'd have this kind of very big spacious backyard. One was for sale on the corner that had been horribly renovated in the 70s and the 80s. Like all the beauty of the interiors were kind of stripped away. Yeah, I had like a pink bathroom and a horrible like mustard yellow kitchen. But we were like, well, that was pretty inexpensive considering. And But they had a very small little garden. But the house next door that was probably last occupied in the 1950s was a complete ruin. And but that had the larger connecting garden. So by some miracle of our real estate agent was able to convince, you know, a family with multiple owners to all agree to sell us both of these houses. So we could exploit the garden and actually have a really big footprint of a garden. And then we thought like, oh, we'll live in this renovated one until we figure out the other one. And then, of course, I said, that's absolutely ridiculous. And we just gutted the entire thing and called our architect friend, Oscar Kaufman, who did our house upstate. And I said, come on, I know you love French wine and French food and come on down here and, you know. He's based in Austria. He's based in Austria mm-hmm. and he really loved the area. He loved these two stone houses. And he was like, I'll work on it with cool. you. I couldn't have done it without him. And that was like a five-year process. But I met Oscar in my wallpaper days, and he is a second-generation architect. He was building a prefabricated townhouse for wallpaper as a kind of case study house. It was just phenomenal. I had been obsessed with prefabrication all through my college days. I just was a kind of armchair wannabe architect. But I love the aesthetic of that. And Oscar was saying, you know, my family in Austria has been dealing with prefabrication for decades and generations. And I was like, wow, the thing that you've just done here is incredible. I have this little piece of land in upstate New York. And Oscar was just like, yeah, no problem. We'll just ship the house over. What's it look like? And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, no problem. Like, what's your budget? And we told him the budget. He was like, yeah, that's no problem. It was like, he was just so easy. I got home. I sent him a picture of what the plot of land looked like. And then he dropped this little Miesian like glass box mm. in the field. And I looked at Yolanda and I was like, this is our guy. Like, this is incredible. And we flew over to Austria and put this project together, choosing materials, went to the factory where the house was being built. And basically the house showed up. I mean, we, we had to do the site prep of um, the foundation and then the house showed up in a uh, trailer. It was just such an epic experience. And the house is great. Like we just spent four solid months and it was meant, it was really designed just to be a weekend house. And then it became our primary permanent place from March through July. So that's the story of the two houses. So that leading to what has been your favorite thing about spending more time at home? And how has it made you kind of look at your spaces differently? 
just being with Yolanda and Clara 24 hours a day is just really yeah, it's just so heavenly. Just love you. Yeah. <laughs> Yolanda's probably sick of me saying this, but every time I go to that house upstate, when we open up the shades and the windows and the light spills in and I make a coffee or pour a drink, I just always am like, I always say out loud, I say, I just love this house. I just love it. It has such an amazing personality and feel and calmness to it. And to have the luxury in such a horrible period in our history to be there and have this kind of sanctuary of place was incredibly special for me. I would say being able to have the time to go through um, all of the things that have been collecting all of the sort of treasures of vintage postcards to like hotel coasters, all these things that I collect and love them. That that part is so therapeutic. I have all of these things and when they sit in bins, it feels sad. Like, well, it meant so much to me when I picked it up and now it just like, it's not even seeing the light of day. And so to be able to kind of give it light and to bring it back into my consciousness and I, I did a lot of these pictures during the early days of lockdown. I called it my today's personal assignment. And it was just like, I would sort of pick a thread of like, okay, today I'm just going to do something with rocks or, you know, it could be a theme around a country. I feel like I never would have done that sort of making vignettes around things that had emotional connection to me to kind of shift the way the house looked even just for an hour. That was really a luxury of time that I never would have had. So I think that that was very special. How can people kind of unearth these memories or give them pride of place or a moment in their homes? How can you kind of guide people and how to do that? Well, I think the first thing is, is often you find those things that were, they were such treasures that you actually brought them home with you. And then you probably put them in a place that you thought was safe, but then you forgot about it. So I think it always begins with, you start organizing. And then in the organizing of it is when you find the stuff that you forgot about. And then once you find the stuff you forgot about, that's when you start to make this kind of picture around your treasures. And those things have such an emotional trigger. And I think it's it's finding those things, which really often comes from literally emptying the cabinets, taking stock at what you have, and then pulling them out and making a little altar, using them and giving them a life. Activating them, I think, in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Or giving them relevance, you know, exactly. to your life. But, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, how do you organize all this stuff? And I would say the worst part of losing my day job, because I was at Condé for so long, and was that I lost my storage unit. I mean, I really mm-hmm. like lived with all of my treasures. I had all the walls surrounding me were like, it was like one huge mood board. And every surface was covered with all the things that inspire me. And so I, I miss having that. But when I, when I left that world, I, I put all of those things by category into little bins and then put those little bins into a bigger bin. I don't really store things away. I like things out and I do not throw anything out anymore. You know, that's what that barn was sort of the anecdote for was to say, okay, there's too much crap in our lives, but let's pack it up. Let's put it in a bin. 
and put it in the barn, but let's not throw it away because yeah. I realize how emotionally connected we both get to all these things. Okay. How do you then stay on top of keeping things organized? That's, that, that's not me. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm tidy and neat, but I ain't organized. Yeah. I mean, Matt likes to kind of have all of his stuff out, as he just said. And I like to kind of bring things out and then put other things away because it clutters my head to see everything out. So I think for me, really, it is about giving something the sort of limelight and then putting other things back in the bins and having there be that rotation. So that's just the way I think that you can keep evolving the look of things and giving respect to the stuff that you worked so hard to to bring back and to to save. So as we're going into the holidays, I want to talk about how you reset and energize the space or how we might think about not necessarily decorating our homes for the holidays, but we've been in our spaces for so long now. How do we kind of like switch it up so the vibe is different? It feels more festive. I feel like you guys are very good at at the end of the day, lighting a candle, pouring a cocktail, changing that vibe. How would you kind of advise people to do that? I think having like a collection of cutting boards, a collection of trays, lots of candles, even if you don't, if those trays are again, living in a bin or in a cupboard, but it's like, okay, now we're going to do this theme. You can just shift the, the energy of a room by bringing out a tray that you haven't seen in a couple of months. You seasonally change the feel of the house with the kind of flower arrangements you make. I think these are more like wild things, like either from our garden or from the house upstate in the field. Yeah, I always bring something in from the outdoors. It's like mm-hmm. whatever I go like to the pine tree and bring something in and and put a sprig of that or or it's just herbs from the backyard in Brooklyn. But I think also collecting glassware like we're big fans of going to the Salvation Army wherever we are and we have quite a collection of different glasses so it's like even just changing up your wine glass yeah and putting the effort into it it really makes a difference you have to care about wanting to make an impact of you know what what a dinner table is dressed like or how you dress. That's where I think it's great to kind of lean into the experts or the people that you admire. But but ultimately if it's not important to you, then I don't know, you don't you don't you don't have to do it. <laughs> you know? I agree with that. I think people sometimes around the holidays like buying things. It's not actually about that. It's about putting the effort in, putting in the care. A hundred percent. And and I think that that's, you know, sort of like the the reason why I think we celebrate the art of the cocktail is there's... Because we like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's just something that's so... It's the ritual. Yeah, the ritual of like, you know, it's not just opening up a bottle of wine. It's like, let's make this thing and it goes in the special glass and it has a nice garnish and there's this effort. And I think what's lovely about the holidays is like, there's just so many opportunities to figure that out. Okay, Matt, what are you looking forward to cooking and drinking, but for the holidays? What are you feeling? I love the, you know, kind of summer barbecue experience. I mean, I barbecue all winter long anyway. That doesn't stop me. But 
I like those kind of long, slow braises that kind of start in the morning. And then by dinner, the whole house is kind of infected with this amazing smell of something. And I, I think those long, slow meals are terrific. And I always look forward to that season of um, that kind of eating. But, you know, I'll mm-hmm. drink Negronis all year round. So I don't have a specific winter drink. I would think we drink more brown spirits. More Manhattans. M- Manhattans yeah. and bourbon-based stuff. I just think that those kind of big hearty meals and big hearty cocktails really work well in the colder months. In challenging times, we lean on the things that support us, uplift us, and make us happy. In this signature franchise, Domino editors ask our guests, quickfire style, about the 10 things that are making them happy. From the books that inspire them, to the personal items that tell their story, to the places they love to eat, travel, and feed their soul. Okay, Matt, you mentioned it, but who is your design hero or a design hero? I was, I'm a huge Gio Ponti fan. And then I think in the modern vernacular, we've become good friends with, with um, Luis Laplace. And I just think he is a powerhouse of talent in the most unpretentious, thoughtful way. I really admire his work. I love his work. Incredible. Yolanda? Uh, I'll just be fast and say Fornicetti. Amazing. Uh, favorite color? What are you into right now? Favorite color, color pairing that you're wearing, that you want to surround yourself with that's making you feel calm? I like brown cars, brown motorcycles, brown sweaters, brown cashmere throws. I just... I think brown is the most understated, underused color. I also own a lot of navy. Yeah, I would say I love navy and gray. And I think that in a house, I like little accents of red. Yeah. I have a lot more brown in my wardrobe right now than I have in the past. I'm kind of brown. loving it. Brown like is red, black. Rust, <laughs> caramel, you know, those deeper tones feel good. Favorite texture material? I love wools. I love wools in knotty, nubbly tweeds. I think that is really, as much as I love a cashmere sweater, I think I'm most excited by a kind of aggressive, wooly, tweedy something. I would mm. say twall. Mm. Love twall. And you guys use twall in a really fresh way in your house in France. We're both kind of nostalgic to that for that world. Okay. If you had to pick one, favorite restaurant and then hotel you can't wait to go back to i would say restaurant that i love so much is um verju in san francisco what i love about it is like i think that they have created a vibe in there that's kind of like all the references from all your favorite places that you've been to around the world and then they have great music and it's it's just like a great vibe hotel Hotel that I'm dying to, I mean, really like all of them. I just, I just miss being in hotels. I I know that's very vague, but I love too many too much. Um, city, you can't wait to go back to. I I miss Milan a lot. I, I love it there. I love the food. I love the architecture. I, I just like Milan a lot. Um, favorite design object or vintage find? Just something that bubbles up. You know, I had an obsession and loved finding anything that was made by Arabia, 
particularly in this their studio line, like the Arabia vases of the period that came out of the studio. I have found absolutely magical ones for almost nothing. And they still, to this day, make me so happy when Yolanda makes an arrangement in one of them. Furniture designer, Matt, someone you love. I love Hans Wagner. I think it's beautiful, elegant, great material. And when you stare at it long enough, you start seeing the design nuance in it, which is nice to find. And I would say Tone. I think we mm-hmm. we constantly are like picking up Tone. Yeah, I agree. Uh, book providing inspiration or kind of book you always return to? I love Terrence Conran. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of old architectural interior design books, and I, I love going back and kind of looking through those Terrence Conran books. Bruce Weber's House is Not a Home is such an amazing kind of window into a world that none of us really will ever have access to. I always found it to be a very inspiring book. I would say, I mean, I always reference that Jasper Conran book. And then Alex Eagle just did a book and it's lovely. It's all these people that you've not necessarily heard of every one of them. I thought that she did a really great job with that. And I think what happens when people who are not totally immersed in the design world and finding things they like, and that I think is a fresh approach. It's a great book. Um, Iconic space that provides inspiration. When we were able to go to restaurants, there was something so elegant and special of walking into the Four Seasons, the restaurant, you know, to walk into that Mies van der Rohe designed building and then be surrounded by those, you know, rosewood interiors. I think a lot of restaurant spaces I find to be incredibly inspiring. Yeah, I would say like I'm more in the hotel space. I feel like we were so inspired when we went to the Villa Feltrinelli mm-hmm. on Lago di Garda. And that was that was so beautifully done. It's an American woman who went in and redesigned or sort of pulled out the most interesting parts of a grand hotel in Italy. That was great. Vintage source, either flea market you can't wait to go back to what is kind of the ultimate inspiration? I love the flea markets that we go to in Maine. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are good. I, I think Maine is a real incredible untapped resource for the flea find. You are so good at kind of taking that off road or taking that detour to the flea market. I mean, most people wouldn't think of Maine as a place to look for vintage or the garage sale or the, you know, sale in someone's parking lot or whatever that might be. Just talk about that inspiration. You inspire me to do that, to dig and to discover. And I think that that's the journey, you know? We have always been get off the highway kind of road trippers. Not only do you, these wonderful little antique flea marketing things pop up is like you often find the best food and the coolest architecture and the greatest old vintage cars. And we just love discovering those back roads that, you know, you don't discover much going like 85 miles an hour on a boring highway. We were as interested in finding the off the beaten path, cool place to eat that feels like really authentic as we are finding like that great junk shop and digging through it. And it's not like we always turn up 
you know, it's like it's we a turn hunch. up a lot of dogs. Yeah, <laughs> a friend of my dad's used to say, like, sometimes you got to kiss a lot of frogs to get to that princess. And often, if your destination is something interesting, you will discover something interesting along the way too. Even when we go to visit my mom or go back to my hometown of Binghamton, we always are kind of trying to find different ways to get there or different detours along the way, even though it's a journey we've made for decades. That's why it takes like six and a half hours to get to our house when we drive. It would take two two hours and 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I love that. Thank you so much. This was That awesome. was fun. Thank you. Thank you. That was so fun. Yeah. Design Time is produced by Team Domino, with special thanks to Alex Redgrave, Linda Denahan, Liz Mundell, Britt Ashcraft, and Ali Elquiza. Our theme music is by the talented Alex Weinstein. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. See you guys next week, right here on Design Time. <laughs>